Mongrel, miscegenator, half-breed, outcast, deviant, heretic. Our words for hybridity are so often epithets. They shouldn't be. Hybrids need not be the problem. It could be the solution. Hybrids do more than embody mixtures between groups. Hybrids reveal the boundaries between groups to be false. And this is vital, for creativity comes from intermingling, from rejecting the lifelessness of purity. Mosin Hamid, Discontent and its Civilizations. Next time they ask you where you're from, you tell them I'm from every goddamn place you're crushing with your thumb. And if they wonder who you are, well, this time don't say nothing, you just pick up your guitar. Welcome to White Adjacent. I'm your host, David Shams, an Iranian-American writer and wannabe podcaster, born and raised in the heart of Kentucky's bourbon country. Growing up in my rural Kentucky hometown, there were whites, blacks, and then us with our Iranian immigrant father and white American mother. It took moving away from my hometown to realize there were others like us, struggling to figure out what it meant to have competing identities, what it meant to be hyphenated, what it meant to straddle whiteness and otherness, what it meant to be white adjacent. On this episode, I'm joined by Daniel Tavanaugh. Dan grew up outside of Philadelphia in Voorhees, New Jersey, with his Iranian immigrant father and his American mother. He spent much of his life navigating the challenges of being white adjacent and is now living in D.C. while finishing his dissertation. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, I guess I will start by asking you what it was like growing up Iranian American outside of Philadelphia and how those challenges have changed as you've gotten older or some maybe have stayed the same. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I grew up, I grew up in Southern New Jersey, uh, in Voorhees, New Jersey in a town of, it's about 30,000 people. Um, it's a generally a, a wealthier, um, it's a wealthier city. Um, it's sort of a suburb of Philadelphia. It's, um, it's, I think it's, a, I mean, it's generally, it was a little bit more diverse, I think, than a lot of cities like it. Um, there were, it was about, uh, I think, maybe about 10% African-American, very few Latinos, um, obviously, but a large, maybe 15, 20% Asian community. Um, and these are Asians from all all different countries of origin. Right. Um, for me growing up, I had, I didn't have a very large Iranian community around me. So one thing I did have was my grandparents who came to live with me. Um, and they actually lived in the house that I lived in, which is, was a little bit unusual. Um, my mother was American, so I had my kind of mother's family nearby in Philadelphia, but I didn't have like a super big Iranian or Iranian American community around me, just kind of friends that we made through the family or other kind of like networks in Philadelphia mostly. Okay. Um, you mentioned in our conversation before, uh, talking about how like, trying to develop friendships with uh, maybe your mom's family or other like white families and, and it being kind of like a, a difficult thing to break down some of those barriers. Uh, yeah. And I think it was around, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken around like American football was kind of where the, the barrier <laughs> was. For That's you. right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I give this example and I, I think it's a, for me, it's a telling example, but I, I think that when you, grow up as being half right mm-hmm. and and i mean you're part of like 
you know, a, a dominant group, a white group on mm-hmm. the one hand, but this other kind of liminal um, mm-hmm. white group on the other. Right. Um, and, and even how people read you in different situations or mm-hmm. contexts can, can vary a lot. Um, but I think so much of the experience of, of being well white, you mm-hmm. know, but also um, the son or, 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 or child of an immigrant is shaped by the context that's around you. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, it was generally, it, it, it was more mixed. It was a more progressive um, area, it was more liberal area. So I didn't have any like direct experiences with prejudice or discrimination Mm -hmm. or or anything like that. I mean, there was, there was stuff that happened a little bit later, but um, generally I was, you know, I didn't, I was very fortunate that I didn't have to experience that Mm -hmm. um, in any serious scale, you know, growing up. Um, The one example of, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I think that when you're, when you're white, I mean, part of being white, part of being, I think a a member of, you know, the dominant group, let's Mm -hmm. call it, as a lot of scholars do is that there is a set of shared cultural practices and meanings that you have in certain things mm-hmm. that are what kind of allows you to participate in, in, you know, the, the rituals and practices that right. make someone white, right. you know, and, and those, you know, some of those practices are shared with other ethnic groups and some of those practices are not. Mm-hmm. And so I remember as a kid, you know, there's no, I'm speaking about American football, you know, mm-hmm. we don't really have that in, in Iran. <laughs> and so I would go, you know, I would go to these places and, you know, on Sunday, it's kind of this, like, you know, it, it's a, you know, let's call it a white ritual, but it's also many other, right. you know, ethnic groups in this country enjoy football and right. like it, whether it or not, it's like, or, you know, originally a part of where they're from or mm-hmm. whatever, but right. we never had that growing up. You yeah. know, we never really like, this kind of tradition in this country to spend all day Sunday, like watching just chain football games right. and, you know, drinking a lot of beer. Right. And that was not something that I ever saw growing up. Right. So as I became older and, you know, I would go either to, you know, watch people playing football in, in my school or I would go to friends' houses and mm-hmm. this was going on. I mean, I couldn't really relate. Right. right. And so even though I, you know, I think that I certainly pass as white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was like, what is football? You know, I don't know what, what are like, you know, and still to this right. day, I don't really know like all of the rules right. the way, you know. And so, you know, I, this is like a very silly example. Mm-hmm. This is not an, this is certainly not an example of discrimination, right. but the accumulation of all of these kinds of things, I think, are what keep, you know, people who are half, but also people who are Iranian Americans kind of at this like, you know, boundary of mm-hmm. what it means to be white, right? right? Even though, you know, that, that boundary varies a lot by context and mm-hmm. for different people. I do think that these kinds of things are what kind of like, what makes us, you know, mm-hmm. Nada would say liminal rights. Right. Yeah. Right? And, you know, this is kind of, this is like the content of that, I think. Yeah. And just for listeners, um, if you're not Iranian American, you've probably never heard of Neta Magbuleh, but it was uh, her book, uh, Limits of Whiteness, that kind of changed the way Iranian Americans talk about themselves in the context of America. And, and it's been kind of, for lack of a better term, revolutionary in the way that we see ourselves in this country. So um, if you're not Iranian American, you should still go out and get the book. If you're Iranian American and haven't read the book, you should go get it and read it. Um, I'm sure most of us have heard of it and, and some of us are still haven't read it, but I've, I've read, I think twice now. So it's just like such a great book, but anyway, um, 
sports are definitely a gateway to, to get into cultures. And, and I think you, you nailed it there with, with American football kind of being the one sport in the U S where most people who are half and have one parent who's an immigrant who, who really have d- a difficult time accessing that because it's a, it's a sport that's really sure you right. know unique to the u.s and but it's not just sports i mean it's a lot of other things there, right? there definitely are a lot Food, of food right you know. yeah um and so uh, you talked about as well that uh you also started playing hockey right and that's very much like also unique to a specific part of, of the u.s so like i grew up in kentucky we didn't have that so right. um just was would be interested to hear your experience playing hockey and, and how maybe your Iranian Americanness kind of played into that or if it didn't even come in at all or right. that sort of thing. It didn't really come in. I mean, my, my interest in, and in, in hockey and how I kind of came to it was a product of the social context at the time. I grew mm-hmm. up in South Jersey. This was the mid nineties. The flyers had mm-hmm. been the Philadelphia flyers had been not such a great team for right. maybe 20 years. <laughs> and then they got lucky and they got Eric Lindros who was mm-hmm. like the superstar and, and so, you know, um, ice hockey in particular, all kinds of hockey is a sport that tracks with the economy kind mm-hmm. of, um, and it's also, it's a very white sport. Mm-hmm. It's a sport that's expensive to, to play right. rent ice, the equipment, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so this was like in the kind of mid nineties, the economy was doing well, at least, you know, in the part of the country where I was living in the flyers were getting a lot of attention. And so all these like rinks were popping up and mm-hmm. so on. I mean, that doesn't really matter, but. Um, I do remember as a, as a kid, you know, living with my father and my grandparents, um, they were not too thrilled about me playing <laughs> ice hockey. Yeah. I mean, not just because they had like no idea what this sport was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was kind of, and I don't think that this is unique to, um, uh, Iranians. I don't even, frankly, I don't even think it's unique to immigrants Mm -hmm. um you know necessarily but from their perspective they were like you need to focus on school every minute you're playing hockey is like a minute away from you know studying or Mm -hmm. whatever and i i think that you know i don't know this but had both of my parents been iranian i think it would have been a much tougher sell because Mm -hmm. i kind of my you know my mom was in in, on on in this sense my advocate right she was like no Kids got to play sports. Sports are an important part of right. like growing up, socializing, yeah. being socialized mm-hmm. to sort of, um, you know, when you're a kid, um, meeting people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, so I think having my mom there actually um, might have been what allowed me to kind of um, play this sport. Whereas, you know, if it were up to my dad, I think back then, you know, in the beginning it was, you know, probably something that he wasn't too thrilled with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just talking to my other Iranian American or Iranian friends, I mean, this is quite common, right. To have a parent, you know, playing a sport like this competitively and the amount of time and energy mm-hmm. and, and work it takes is not something that, you know, it's immediate, it, 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 it's immediately clear, at least I think to our community, mm-hmm. you know, what the benefits of those are. Yeah, definitely. I definitely understand that. Um, you talked about how your your grandparents, your your dad's parents, were there from the time you were born right. on. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. And then, you know, how did that affect your experience growing up? I know that you've talked to me before about how, like, at first you're kind of not embracing it, and then you did embrace it, right. and there was like right. waves of em- embracing, and then uh, also how like you interacted with your friends when your grand when when they were over at your place, and that sort of like 
interaction. If, could you go into some of those yeah, stories sure. and talk about sure. that a little bit? My grandparents lived, they moved, they came from Iran after I was born in 1986 and they lived in our home mm -hmm. and um, they basically helped raise my sister and I. My mother okay. was a mortgage banker. My father was a professor. Okay. So they were the ones who generally got us ready for school, did mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of housework and, mm -hmm. you know, as is sort of common um, in Iran, but also in other, among other Middle Eastern communities, right. like the extended family is very much a part of like raising the, the mm -hmm. children and, you know, the idea, especially to my father, that we would get like a nanny was like, yeah. kind of unheard of right um and so i think that they them being there um i think gave me you know i i became very interested in in the culture i was always i mean i was always kind of aware as a kid of like the incredible sacrifice they mm -hmm. made right you right. know these people are much older mm -hmm. they're just getting up and giving up their lives to come raise you know this kid that they don't even know mm -hmm. right i mean it's kind of unbelievable when you think about it um and so i took that sacrifice very seriously and, mm -hmm. and i it's something i still kind of hold on to but mm -hmm. um but i think you know I, I have a lot of friends who are also half and you know different parts of being iranian you know they kind of fade or persist in 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 weird ways and because i had my grandparents there mm -hmm. my experience was a little bit different mm -hmm. so for example my mother learned farsi Mm -hmm. Right. Which is like very strange. Right. Um, me and my sister, we both learned Farsi. Um, we kind of, because they were so present, um, we picked up on a lot of the culture, the stories, the language and other mm -hmm. things that many, many, I think, um, young people who are half don't necessarily get. Mm -hmm. And either they kind of have to make sense of on their own or they kind of figure it out from other communities mm -hmm. that they're involved in. Right. But I do think that there is this kind of like tension um, mm -hmm. between these two communities. And again, it's kind of mediated by the context you live in. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, at, at times, you know, um, I think when you're, let's say, multiracial in this case, mm -hmm. even though it's multiracial between like a liminal white group and, mm -hmm. you know, a very dominant white group. Right. Um, you kind of, you know, society sees you a certain way, mm -hmm. right? And right. in my case, in my context, society saw me as white, right. unless they had like some reason to, you know, other me in some situation. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, your kind of external identity is, is not always consistent with your internal one, mm -hmm. right? And so right. if you do things or you feel like, you know, you're more Iranian in some ways, these things are kind of in at odds mm -hmm. and, you know, at different, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't like that. Right. right. It was very unsettling. Yeah. It was kind of this constant pressure. I felt like, Oh, I don't fit in. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't speak Farsi to my grandparents when my friends were around. I was right. kind of like embarrassed by it. Right. Um, I didn't want to, you know, have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, of course when I got older, that kind of changed, but right. in the moment when you're young and you're growing up with all these kinds of things, you know, your first instinct is to want to fit in, right? And, right. and to have people not view you as, as something different, even yeah. if like, you know, you come to realize that that internal identity that you have is kind of at odds with how people see you. And mm -hmm. and that was the case for me, especially as I got older, I think. Got it. Um, so it, at what point did you start learning Persian? Was it just like, you know, immediately or as a kid or did you 
like you said, push it to the side and then at some point later start to want to learn it again? Or, um, and were there specific moments where you're like, okay, I've got it. This is something that I have that's unique for me that I need to start to embrace. Yeah. So I, I learned how to speak it as a baby. I mean, I learned how to speak it, um, with my grandparents in our house, uh, as I was learning English. So I learned them both simultaneously. Okay. I mean, of course, I'm, my proficiency in Farsi is not like what my proficiency is in English. Um, right. But that's how I kind of learned it. Um, it wasn't until high school, really for me, the defining moment was was 9-11 mm-hmm. when I kind of became, well, let's say like activated in all of this mm-hmm. and started to like question what was happening and, you know, other things were happening to my own family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me is when things I think started to kind of, um, it was kind of jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually, I never learned to read and write Farsi. And so beginning in high school, I kind of started reading stuff and teaching myself. Like I okay. learned the script. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to like read small things. I was using all these like kind of kids books mm-hmm. that my right. grandparents had like locked away somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, you know, started learning a little bit myself. And then I went to college mm-hmm. and, you know, my obsession with like all things Iran kind of continued. Right. Um, and I took like formal courses, um, mm-hmm. both in language and on the history and culture. You know, I took an Iranian film class. Um, all of these kinds of things. So, but it was really in high school. Um, and it was mostly after nine 11 where for me, this, um, my interest in mm-hmm. this kind of like stuff, both personally and professionally. And, you know, those lines are not very clear as they're not for a lot of Iranian Americans who work on Iran related issues or right. whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of how it happened for me. Cool. Um, I guess I'll get into like, uh, with your mom and the, mm-hmm. you've talked about the uh, different religious backgrounds that your mom and your dad come from two different religious faiths mm-hmm. and um, how you fit into that with her family and how she's fit into that with your dad's family and some right. of the clashes that based on the stories you've told me ended up, they've, you know, mediated them actually pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll see how I turn out. But yeah. <laughs> um, if you can, jump into that and kind of describe some of those things. And if yeah, there are things sure. that I remember that you told me that you don't jump into, I'll try to yeah, sure. shepherd you in that direction. Sure, too. please. Yeah. Um, so my father, uh, my father is, is Muslim um, and comes from, I'll start off by saying that both of my parents are, are quite secular and, right. and not, you know, religion is like an important, um, is, is important to them, but they're both, you know, um, they don't, they never were practicing um, in any serious way. I don't Mm -hmm. think my mother um, came from a Jewish family Mm -hmm. and of course, you know, and kind of, you know, the one thing that like Americans, most Americans know about the Middle East is that like, you know, Jews and Muslims don't like each other very much. And so this would always be, you know, you can imagine like the kinds of things people will tell you when you, when people, when people ask you what your religion is and you're like, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, people are, get it. <laughs> people will say things like, oh, you must like be internally conflicted or, you know, oh, you must like you represent peace or like whatever kind of crazy, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if this is all, you know, right. um, because of like the kind of cultural consumption or, or, mm-hmm. or, or media or whatever that you see. I mean, this is like kind of natural that you would respond in this way. Mm-hmm. And so I was born. My parents both decided that I would be. Um, that I would be Muslim and, and that's how I consider myself. But, you know, I, I don't 
I don't like deny that other part of like who I am. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's an important part of who my family is and, mm -hmm. and my own kind of identity. Um, but um, yeah, you know, my, my parents, they made the decision when I was born to kind of keep me and my sister away from organized religion. Okay. Right? So certain things would be celebrated, um, you know, in their own kind of way. Right. But, um, you know, they wouldn't, we wouldn't go to like mosque, you mm -hmm. know, we wouldn't participate in like any, any of that kind of stuff. And it's not because my parents were against it, but because this was like kind of an issue between the two families and because they thought it would like, you know, mess me and my sister up in some way, mm -hmm. they made the decision to just like, you know, give us like a little bit of, you know, give us kind of pick things off the menu that mm -hmm. kind of made sense and yeah. that were, were easy and important yeah. and let us kind of figure it out when we got older. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was my experience. My parents, you know, to this day, they're, they're, they're still together. They're happily married. Right. You know, for them, I think they, you know, um, the religious stuff and it, it's not just religion. I mean, you know, you, I mean, my parents met in like the, the early eighties, you can imagine, you know, <laughs> Your your Jewish family and like mm -hmm. a working class family in Philadelphia, and your daughter comes home in the middle of like the hostage crisis and says, <laughs> you know, hey, I really like this Iranian guy. <laughs> you know, I think that yeah. I want to, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with him. And you know, it was a bit jarring. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> and so, um, I think that took some time. You mm -hmm. know, and, and you know, now it's kind of like irrelevant. Everyone gets along. They're mm -hmm. all, you know. I've, it's not a big deal, but in that particular moment, you know, like hostages were on TV every night. Mm -hmm. um, people didn't know much about Iranian Americans. Right. You know, all they knew was that there was this like crazy, you know, thing happening mm -hmm. in their country. There was a revolution and there were pictures of Khomeini and, and the embassy and all that right. stuff. So that's really all they knew. Um, ironically, on my father's side, I think it was a little bit easier to, you know, accept both because, you know, of, of the kind of, um, kind of male advantage. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but also because like there were Jewish Iranians, you know, mm -hmm. my, my dad always tells me there was like a Jewish Iranian that lived in his building mm -hmm. when he was young and he would right. always like, you know, um, see them and they were family friends and they were close. So it wasn't this like weird kind of thing that, you know, on the Iranian side, they had never been really exposed to, I think. Right. Yep. Um, you talked about how, uh, you and your sister kind of lobbied for, uh, Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was an interesting story to see how the, the, the compromise and the debate like took place and, and what sort of decision-making process your parents made and what they yeah. accepted and didn't accept. So could you go into that a little bit? And, yeah, and talk sure. About that? So, you know, at some point me and my sister were like, all right. You know, we're, we're, they're pulling like a fast one on us. <laughs> and so we kind of lobbied for, you know, we wanted to celebrate Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it was actually my dad who was like, yeah, you know, who cares? Like, it's just, you know, it's just gifts and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think my mom was a little bit more reluctant. Mm -hmm. And so like the compromise ended up being like, we're not going to, we're going to give you presents, mm -hmm. and, but we're not going to have a Christmas tree. Okay. And me and my sister were like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, um, 
So, yeah, so I think um, this is kind of what happened. And, you know, I actually was recently talking to my to my mom about this. And I said, you know, what was so bad about the Christmas tree? And she was just like, well, you know, this is like, you know, we are, you know, we were a minority religion. Mm-hmm. We never had a Christmas tree growing up. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, you know, to have a Christmas tree would be to, like, give a part of who I am away. And, oh, wow. okay. you know... I thought that was really kind of revealing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is like how people hold on to mm-hmm. these kinds of things in these like very like kind of marginal ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for my mom, like just the symbol of having, you know, this mm-hmm. thing um, would have been for her, you know, like kind of giving something a little bit up. I mean, and it's kind of a product of where she grew up and mm-hmm. how she grew up and all that. And right. so she wanted to continue that. Yeah. Um, my dad was kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> Uh, at least that's how they explain it to me too. Yeah. Who knows? Um, were there, did you all do uh, Hanukkah or Noruz or any of the, um, the holidays for, from both? We didn't, we did Noruz. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't celebrate, um, you know, because my grandparents lived with us, we never did any of the like um, Jewish holidays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother actually um, also nominally converted um, in the beginning. Okay. Um, this is, you know, it's mostly due to like how the Iranian government at the time was issuing right. ID cards yep. to Iranians, uh, you know, children of male Iranians who were born outside of the country. Mm-hmm. You had to, at that time, it's no longer true. You mm-hmm. had to like marry a Muslim or you had to demonstrate that. Um, mm-hmm. Again, this is not true today. And who knows how much this was enforced even back then. Right. Um, so we never really celebrated any of the Jewish holidays. You know, I would... I grew up in a, the, where I, the kind of community that I grew up in, the city I grew up in mm-hmm. was very close to an, an, a, a very large Jewish kind of community mm-hmm. in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of like Jewish families that lived in our city as well. So I kind of like, you know, I was always kind of exposed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, for many years I went to JCC camp. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we would kind of see that stuff separately Mm -hmm. i would kind of hang out with my other family sometimes for hanukkah or Mm -hmm. or passover right um i have memories of 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 that kind of thing um the islamic holiday i mean we celebrated no and no was always very big right um but we didn't celebrate too many of the islamic holidays Mm -hmm. and we kind of knew we knew about them we knew what was going on right but because my parents were so secular it was like you know aside from no ruse they were very deliberate about like not really having too much in the house um, that in their view could like distract me and my sister or Mm -hmm. make the process of assimilating um, as Americans a little bit different. Right. Um, And so it, you know, it's not just religion too. I mean, it's even, you know, my name, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my, my, my name gets me into a lot of trouble in in weird ways (laughs) because it's not, you know, it's not a very common, I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, not, a, I mean, it's a, it's not a common Muslim name, mm-hmm. even though it's recognized as Muslim in right. Islam. Um, it's also um, kind of, it's, it's a, it's a prophet and, mm-hmm. and it's much bigger. The prophet, the, Dan, the prophet Daniel is much bigger in Judaism than it is in Islam. Right. So people, they get confused. Right. Right. But my parents were adamant that when I was named that they have a, there was a name that um, kind of fit both of these cultures mm-hmm. and would not uh, reveal me to the outside world right. as being of like a particular mm-hmm. um, ethnic group, right? did they which, is, which give, is very different from. Did they give you a middle name as well? Or? 
they did. My middle name is Lee. Okay. Um, which is also not at all Iranian yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, um, but that's kind of like how I got that was like kind of a separate story. It's okay. not, you right. know, not too relevant. It was it. interesting because it's the, the, my names are my first and middle name are very similar in that they can be trans transferred between different religious groups. Right. But yeah. also gets me in trouble because it's not used in Islamic culture as much as it is in Christianity and Judaism. Exactly. So even though it's uh, recognized, recognizes both. Yeah. 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 So I was wondering if the middle name was also something like that too, but it's not. <laughs> so. uh, yeah. Kind of. I mean, my middle name was, I was named after, um, in, 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 as I understand it, and and maybe I'm not, I don't know this too well, but like in Jewish, um, a lot of like in, in Jewish culture, um, in 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 the U.S. and um, a lot of there's this kind of tendency to give the middle name. You know, your middle name is comes from someone who was recently deceased mm-hmm. or somebody right. in the in the lineage in some some way. I don't really know the details, but mm-hmm. as that was explained to me, you know, my great grandfather was like the first to come from from Russia to the U S yeah. uh, his name was Lewis. Okay. So they took the first letter of his name and they gave me Lee. Okay. Know? And, um, that's like, you know, I, I, I don't know this for sure, but mm-hmm. in, in Judaism, it's, I, I think it's a little more common, right? In Islam, it's totally, we don't really, mm-hmm. we don't really do that. Right. Um, but, um, but that's how I got that. that got name. it. Okay. Um, I guess we'll talk about growing up like elementary school, middle school, high school, and like how you, um, kind of how your identity as Iranian American like grew through that time period and how you kind of, uh, you know, introduced it to friends and how friends like responded to it. (laughs) If there are any sort of tensions in within friend groups, but you said you also grew up in kind of a diverse space. So maybe people were a little bit more familiar with it than I think, I think so. I mean, even on like the kind of street, that I lived on, mm-hmm. there were several Indian American families. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there was, there was that, um, you know, but I do think, I mean, nothing serious ever happened mm-hmm. to me, but you know, I would have friends over sometimes and they mm-hmm. would like make fun of me for speaking a different language, mm-hmm. um, that this language was, you know, kind of there and they didn't understand. Right. I mean, the irony is like, you feel in these moments kind of like, Oh wow. Like I'm weird. I'm different. I don't mm-hmm. want to be different, but it's like really what it comes from, on their end specifically, you know, the, um, white people is like mm. this like anxiety that they have where they're, you know, you're so used to mm-hmm. being the dominant, right. The world is kind of made for white people. Right. And then suddenly you're in your friend's house and like everyone's speaking a language you don't understand. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it comes into, you know, the, this kind of like anxiety you have in this, mm-hmm. this moment where all of a sudden you're not the kind of dominant, right. Mm-hmm. You don't have the kind of like, you know, and Robin D'Angelo's work, you know, like white advantage, like the persistent white advantage yeah. that you have. You're right. now in somebody's house and nobody speaks a language you understand. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Okay? So you're, you know, this anxiety you feel is kind of like, um, you know, it's a way to like make sense of it. Right. This mm-hmm. is different. I'm going to make fun of it, you know, right. and your kids. Right. So yeah. you don't really, <laughs> you know, you don't really, you haven't really internalized all of these like, you know, kind of norms that we have in, in, in this society. Yep. Um, um, even though those norms in some cases don't really matter either. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of like, you know, there would be like moments of that, mm-hmm. but I think that was the most significant thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think after nine 11, 
there were definitely like, you know, a couple cases that were a little bit more serious, but mm-hmm. nothing where I ever thought that my personal safety was like in jeopardy right. um, or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, the one thing that really, I think, shaped me was a couple years after 9-11. So my father was a um, professor at, uh, at, at LaSalle University okay. in Philadelphia, and he still is to this day. And so after 9-11, um, you know, to make a long story short, basically my father was getting like um, experiencing discrimination at his um, at his workplace. Mm-hmm. And it kind of culminated in he was the chair of his department. Mm-hmm. It culminated in his um, in the provost and the dean at the university he was at, like n- removing him from his position as chair. Mm-hmm. They couldn't really touch him because he had tenure. But right. Um, and they would say all kinds of like just crazy racist stuff. Mm-hmm. And my, my father eventually sued them. Um, and, and not a lot of this is like public and in court documents and whatever, but they would say things like to my dad, you know, you're waging a one man jihad against the provost. They would say things like, you know, all of you, all of you Iranians have problems with authority. Look what Whoa. you did to the Shah, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and just like patently racist stuff right. that you know in any it, it's quite obvious that like that stuff is like grounds for a lawsuit right, right. and that's you yeah. know it's you know the equal um equal employment you know it, you have like national origin you have race mm-hmm. you have religion and so a lot of these you know a lot of these things were so egregious and so terrible mm-hmm. that um you know and then it culminated with like my dad getting you know they took his chair away um mm-hmm. And so that was like, for me, it was like a very formative moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So I remember that quite well. Yeah. Okay. Um, how did you, and I think we've talked about this before, like, uh, and I've tried to use this in other interviews as well. Like, how did you, um, set boundaries for yourself when you, when you're making friends, you know, like, were there certain things that you noticed that friends, like qualities that friends had? Or were they just like, oh, this guy's my next door neighbor and I play with him every afternoon. And so we're best friends from that point on. But yeah, I don't think um, I don't think very much of this was like, a, um, you know, because there were, you know, I had my cousins and mm-hmm. they were kind of our age um, and they were Iranian. Mm-hmm. So I had them around me. Um, but other than that, I don't really think that you know, being half really influenced, like who I was kind of like associating Mm -hmm. with or whatever, especially at a young age. I mean, I think when I got to college, definitely things changed, Mm -hmm. but I think as a kid, you know, I wanted to like play hockey. I wanted to have fun. Mm -hmm. And to me, because I, again, because I was like, because society saw me as white, Mm -hmm. um, I never really had to like it, you know, unless people were like in my house, right. Mm -hmm. Or like asked me what religion I was or whatever, they would have no idea that I was, I was different. I mean, that, that's just the way it was for me, Mm -hmm. um, growing up. And so it never really like came up, Mm -hmm. um, until, you know, nine 11 and later, but by that point I was in high school. Right. But as a kid, you know, I mean, I remember a couple of times being in, you know, I went to JCC camp because that's Mm -hmm. just what everybody did were you know not everybody but a lot of people did what where i grew up Mm -hmm. and so there were moments where i kind of was like you know what is this you know Mm -hmm. this is like you know this is very different um 
you know, I had heard, you know, kind of in my household growing up, like, you know, obviously because it was so much of a part of how society saw my family as being quote Jewish and Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of always heard about like Israel and Palestine, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there, there were times where my dad and my mom actually like, you know, kind of not in a, any serious way, but like had debates about this over the dinner table mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and so, you know, there were moments where I would like kind of channel these debates and I would be like, Oh wait, you know, this is what I'm hearing now about like, um, mm -hmm. Israel or right. Judaism or whatever is like, not what I was hearing at home. Mm -hmm. And so there would be those kinds of moments. Um, right. but those moments don't really make sense to you when you're, when you're a kid, mm -hmm. I think, or right. at least they didn't for me, yeah. especially when you're a kid who, who passes very, very much so as white as yeah. I did back then. And you, you mentioned that in, in college that started to change a little bit, how you, you know, made friends and, what friend groups you became a part of. Yeah. Uh, can you go into that a little bit and, and discuss sure. that? Yeah. I think, um, you know, by the time I got to college, I knew what I wanted to study, mm -hmm. right? I knew I was interested in the Middle East. I knew that I had this obsession with like all things Iran. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to take the classes. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to take like history and politics and other stuff that had to do with Iran mm -hmm. and the kind of Middle East more broadly. Um, there were, where I, you know, where I went to school, there were different Persian clubs. Mm -hmm. There was, um, I was in uh, a fraternity, mm -hmm. <laughs> something I'm not totally. Which, which fraternity were you in? I was in uh, Pi Kappa Phi. Um, you know, it was a very like important part of, okay. you know, my college experience, yeah. but you know, I have all kinds of issues with fraternities that I'm now way more aware of than I was back then. Yeah. Anyway, um, there was another Iranian, um, mm -hmm from LA in my fraternity actually. Okay. So we had this, like, you know, we were, we were quite close. Mm -hmm. We both spoke the language. Right. Um, there were other like Persian student groups mm -hmm. that I was a part of. And so all of these things, like, you know, I kind of sought them out in some ways. They just kind of happened mm -hmm. because of the kind of classes I was taking and the people I was around. Um, and so all of these things were, um, they were like really important in giving me like a sense of community mm -hmm. while I was at college that, um, and a way to connect with like who I was that I never necessarily had outside of my family mm -hmm. growing up. I right. think. Um, when you talk about being, uh, in, uh, I won't get into the fraternity stuff, but that's interesting because <laughs> I also was in a fraternity. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah. So I'm still good friends with a handful of guys, but, um, and same, kind of description in my head that I have that you just gave like a, yeah. cause it was good. Yeah. It was cool to be a part of at the time and right. whatever. Right. Um, but, uh, when you were engaging with the Persian clubs, did you mm -hmm. ever feel out of place? Like, did you ever feel like you were an imposter that you weren't Iranian enough? Were there any sorts of like moments where they were like, Oh, that's the happy. Yeah. Know? No, I definitely felt this way. Okay. Um, not, you know, it's, I mean, I felt this way even among some people who were like growing up, even mm -hmm. among, you know, not my family, but mm -hmm. my extended family. Mm -hmm. Um, there would just be like comments people would make or, you know, people would always like ask, like they would say something and then they would be like, Oh, can you understand me? Or, you mm -hmm. know, they would say something like, Oh, do you know what this is? Like they would make mm -hmm. some like cultural reference and they would mm -hmm. be like, the assumption was that I didn't know about it. You right. Know? So they had to like, in their minds, they were being polite. Mm -hmm. Right. But they were also kind of like 
assuming that I did not know about these things. Yeah. So there were a couple of things in my case that I think, um, um, I mean, everybody likes to say that their experience is unique or different, but mm-hmm. the fact that my grandparents lived in our home mm-hmm. and the fact that my mother learned to speak Farsi mm-hmm. um, were two very important things that I think insulated me from a lot of this kind of like behavior on the Iranian side. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as my grandparents were around, nobody was going to say anything about mm-hmm. like my mother's whiteness. Right. Right. Um, and my mother like spoke Farsi, so you couldn't do this like Persian <laughs> thing where you like say something. Yeah. Right? It would just, you know, so, um, so there was that. Right. And, and I think that was important, but I do think, you know, in other cases, people, um, make their own, you know, judgments about, you know, being white or, mm-hmm. or being half and what that means, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there, I guess like there are some people that think, well, if you're, if you're half, then you only have like half the amount of culture or mm-hmm. whatever kind of silly construct they have, or mm-hmm. your Farsi is only half as good. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, culture and language acquisition do not work in this way. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not right. like a function of the per- amount of like, you know, Persian you have in you. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't think of you in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't right. mean that, you know, if in, we live in a country where, um, for better or worse, like racial boundaries are, are pretty rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, and people want to like categorize you right? and people want to know where you stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when, when you're half, you defy a lot of those people, you, you prevent a lot of those people from doing that. Um, mm-hmm. and it's situational, right? Some people, they don't care. Some people will welcome you. Some mm-hmm. people will be like, Oh, well you're half you know, you don't understand what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some cases they're right. Yep. Um, but you know, it really all, it really all depends, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely had some of these cases again, nothing like serious, mm-hmm. you know, nothing ever like, you know, um, aggressive or certainly violent, but right. it's mostly just like comments people will make about like, you know, being half, mm-hmm. um, and what that means yeah. that, you know, and these things that, you know, they, when I was a kid, I just kind of got used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've increasingly started to like bother me, I think, mm-hmm. especially now with like Trump and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Right. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's something that I hear now way more than I did, certainly even growing up. And this is directed at you from non-Iranian Americans? At both sides. Both sides. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's a bit weird in my case. I lived, I was, you know, after Trump was elected, I was like living abroad for about a Mm-hmm. year and eight months and so i came back and and maybe it's because like i was living abroad and like weird things about me changed or mm-hmm. the way i acted or behaved mm-hmm. or whatever but like since i've been back and i came back in, in january and people now i get this question all the time like what is your ethnicity you know mm-hmm. nobody ever really asked me that growing yeah. up um and right. nobody asked me that before trump and you know, I don't, I don't think that it comes necessarily, I mean, both people ask it, right? Like people who are not white, mm-hmm. other, other liminal kind of whites mm-hmm. and people who are white. Yeah. And I don't think that they're asking this because, you know, um, they're racist, right? I think they're asking this because we live in this kind of, you know, again, we like to think that we live in this world where race doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. the lived reality, I think of, uh, you know, if many people in this country is that like race matters a whole lot and these boundaries mm-hmm. are quite rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think people now want to know like, you know, what side you're on, where mm-hmm. do you stand, right? Right. You know, the kind of battle lines have been drawn and people want to know where you fit into that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're asking more. That's why these things, it's kind of like the ethnicization of U.S. politics. And, and a lot of people have written about this. Right. Um, and so maybe it's a product of that. But then when you say you're, you know, when people ask you what ethnicity you are as as a half, I mean, what do you say, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, it's it's not a, you can't give a one word answer. Yeah, exactly. This is not like, you know, this is not like the census for us, yeah. right? There's, there's a very complicated answer and, you know, that answer means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, going on, on that, do you ever feel like that there are um, consequences to you uh, talking about your Iranianness or saying I'm Iranian American? Like, is there a clear like change in behavior from the people you're interacting with who don't know, but have just asked if you're Iranian American or like just ask what your background is and you say, I'm Iranian American. And then it just completely changes the way they interact with you. I think so. I mean, you know, again, because of the net, the kind of social networks that I'm most embedded in, which right now is like other academics. Mm -hmm. Um, and now that I live in DC, I mean, other people who work on these issues here in Washington, right. And then, of course, there are like the Iranians and, and, and other Arab Americans that I'm mm. very close with um, as a product of my work. Right. And so they don't really care. Right. They're right. they're woke. Yeah. Right? They don't you know, they're not going to say anything. But yeah. like there will be instances where, you know, I'll be like um, getting my hair cut mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll be like at a doctor's office and I'll say it'll be like, oh, like, you know, whatever. Where are you from? S- something. And I'll mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm half Iranian. Um and they'll be like, they'll say something like, why does everybody over there hate us? Or like, you know, why, why is there like, yeah. you know, why are they always like killing each other? Like, why is it so crazy there? Like something like that. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're, if you've been, if, if you have been watching like CNN for an hour every week, your whole mm-hmm. life, right? like you're not going to know very much else about Iran, right? Yeah. Except that, you know, they, they really want nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. that we sanction them and that mm-hmm. like we're going to war with them. Um, but I also want to say something, uh, kind of related to this. I mean, ever since I can, I was a kid, as far as I can remember, um, the U S government has talked openly about going to war with Iran. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And that's how most white Americans know Iran. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, forget about the revolution and the mm-hmm. hostage crisis and all that. I mean, today now, I mean, this is what Americans know. So what it's a bit, you know, what's it like growing up um, being a part of this country, you know, or having family in this country, you know, or or, um, feeling a part of this, having this identity being Iranian. And every week on the news, you hear that your country might be destroyed Mm -hmm. or that the country you currently live in is going to attack that country. Mm -hmm. I mean, the psychological effects of that, I don't think, um, should be under, we shouldn't underestimate Mm -hmm. that. Right. Yep. I mean, we constantly had to grow up as kids, you know, having family in Iran with the threat of, you know, aside from the challenges, just going there and the sanctions and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff you know, like it's, it's pretty jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody who's not Iranian like understands it or cares because this country has gone to war so many times with so many other countries mm-hmm. that, 
you know, white Americans can't really empathize with like people who may be one day victims of a war and some, I mean, it's just not, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so that leaves us in this like weird position growing, you know, you know, as Iranian Americans where, you know, we're, um, we're kind of always listening to these things and hearing them and dealing with, in many cases, the, the, you know, psychological stress of having to hear these things. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's an important part of the, what it means to be Iranian American, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think we talk about that, that enough. I also think that being half poses its own set of challenges mm-hmm. related to this. Yeah. Because like some people will say to you, oh, well, you know, like if they know that like there might be a war one day or something, they'll be like, okay, well, like which side are you on? Right. Yeah. Like, how do you answer that? Exactly. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know, and it's weird because, you know, if you even suggest that you're not like, you know, you know, red, white, and blue, Mm -hmm. people will think you're nuts. Yeah. Right. And, and you're automatically assumed to be an agent of the Islamic Republic. Yeah. Right. (laughs) That, or, you know, if you're anything but loyal, Mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's, it's interesting to me to Mm -hmm. like think about these things. And I think often we tend not to, we tend to underestimate, you know, the kind of like psychological consequence. I mean, for many people, it's not just psychological. Mm -hmm. People have family there. Mm -hmm. You know, my family is banned from coming to the U S right now. People have family over there. They Mm -hmm. can't get medicine or whatever too. So it's, it's more than psychological. It's Mm -hmm. very much material, but, um, just this way in which Iran has talked about, um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's really quite formative to the identity mm-hmm. in, in many weird ways. Yeah, definitely. I would love to go into that more often <laughs> because I've got a lot of opinions on that as well. But um, real quick, have you been to Iran? I have never been. You've to never Iran. been to Iran? No, okay. I haven't. Um, any desire to go? Is it, is there, are the reasons behind not going? Yeah. Family hasn't gone yet or? You're- of, of course. I mean, uh, I would love nothing more to go, you know. I think as, as a kid, I mean, you know, in the eighties, it was very hard to go, you know, my father was a PhD student, Mm -hmm. you know, there were all kinds of restrictions on um, Iranians back then. Mm -hmm. Um, and then things kind of got better and my dad became naturalized and Mm -hmm. all this stuff. Um, but I think, you know, even my dad went back once he came in 79, he went back once in, uh, 99, um, or, or sorry, 97. And that was the only time he's been back since, um, and we didn't go as as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that, I think, is because we were half, mm-hmm. right? You know, I think if both of our parents were Iranian and both of them had families there, there would have been more, you know, you know, more of an effort, I think, to try and go. But mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened. And because my grandparents were here. Mm-hmm. So, and my dad's sister, his only sister, was also here right. in the U.S., and so there was never really like there was, uh, you know, there was never a pressing need for us to go back because the whole family was here. Right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we have extended family and cousins and whatever and mm-hmm. and all of that. And like, it'd be nice to see, you know, where my father is from. But because of that situation that I had, there was never this kind of urgency mm-hmm. to go. Right. And by the time I got to, to high school and college, it that started to really bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways you know, the kind of things that I'm interested in now and that I work on are very much, you know, extension of that longing to go to Iran and Mm -hmm. and to see, you know, where I kind of came from. Yeah. Um, And I couldn't really do that because of like 
all the kind of structural boundary, all the kind of structural constraints that exist right. in travel. You know, you can't get a visa to go to Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to get an Iranian passport. Right. There's the military there's service. All there's all things, these things. That you have to, and yeah. because there was no real urgency mm-hmm. to go and because my dad's connections to Iran um, over time, you know, because his family is all here, mm-hmm. have um, diminished in some ways. I mean, not his like personal connection to Iran, but mm-hmm. just his familial obligations in Iran have, have evolved. Right. Um, it's just not something that was like a priority for my family, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And that made me at times lash out against my family mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of get frustrated with them. Like, why didn't you take us to this, mm-hmm. to this place we're from? Like, you know, it, you know, why, you know, how did you keep this from us? You know, mm-hmm. there were, you know, I've had these arguments with my parents um, yeah. and it's unfortunate that I haven't been, you know, I would, I would love nothing more to go, but mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's, it is what it is at, yeah, this, point. at this point. Right. And yeah. going right now is like, would be not a great idea given what's going on between the U S and, and Iran yeah. and, and Trump and what's happening over there as well. Yeah, so. definitely. Um, I want to end on a more kind of humorous note. I think I told you about these questions that I'm going to ask that are kind of funny, like rapid fire questions <laughs> to kind of, lighten the mood. I can't as we, promise my <laughs> answers will be funny, but well, I think some, some may, uh, <laughs> uh, we'll start out with what's your comfort food. Like when you go home, what's the one thing you look forward to? Or like, what's the one dish that you ask your parents or your grandparents to make? Oh, I loved Fess and June. Fess and June. Okay. Fess and June was my favorite. Nice. For sure. Okay. Uh, favorite Iranian restaurant in DC. It could also be anywhere else. Maybe oh, you're man. like going to toss. This is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> uh, I'm going to punt on this one because I've only really been to Shamshiri. Okay. And I, I've been to Moby Dick as well. Um, and I like Shamshiri a lot. But, okay. Um, you're going to just pass? Yeah, I'm going to pass because I have <laughs> other friends who are like really into some of the other ones. Yeah. I don't want to upset them. But Shamshiri is very good. Yeah. Um, I've been there like a bunch of times. Um, okay. But I haven't yet been to enough of them. So. Got it. Um, favorite city in the world. If you go anywhere, where would it be? Beirut. For Beirut. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Beirut. All right. I lived for the Beirut for the past four summers and there's nowhere, you know, a lot of connections between Beirut and, and, and Lebanese, uh, two Iranians that mm-hmm. we can get into another time. Yeah. That's Definitely. for sure. My favorite place. Uh, what sense or any sort of action or thing that you've experienced that automatically will trigger nostalgia for you? Uh, nostalgia, you know, to my childhood or any, anywhere. Oh, that's good. Hmm. Um, hmm. I'd have to think about that. I think, I mean, I I think the biggest, you know, um, I think it's definitely eating the food, Mm -hmm. um, for me because, because my grandparents lived with us, we had Iranian food every night. Right. So (laughs) that to me is like the biggest, you know, whenever I'm, you know, and I've, I've, you know, recently started like trying to cook this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me is like automatic, right. you know, um, whenever I'm like at a Persian restaurant or eating at a, a friend's house, I'll start remembering, mm-hmm. you know, I'll remember my grandparents and growing up with the food and Got it. and what that meant. So that to me is like the most constant reminder. Okay. Um, which NHL East team do you dislike the most? The oh, Rangers, man. Devils, Bruins, Caps, or someone else? Yep. Uh, it's it's mostly the Penguins. Okay. Um, you know, growing up, it was because the Penguins were not very good. <laughs> yeah, it was the Devils. Um, the Rangers were kind of always there. 
mm-hmm. um, but it's really all three of them. The okay. Island, Islanders were never really like that great mm-hmm. um, while I was a kid, but it was always it was always those three. Okay, uh, as a Flyers fan, <laughs> how did it make you feel when the Caps won the Stanley Cup? <laughs> oh, I you know <laughs> this is another question that's gonna like upset and annoy and annoy people. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, yeah, it makes me feel sad that the Flyers like haven't won a cup yeah. in, uh, since 75. Um, and there's like, you know, there's this feeling that I have that like Caps fans are mm-hmm. like kind of fair weather fans, right. you know, um, I'll just, I'll like leave it at that. But yeah, <laughs> okay. it was, it was awful. Um, and maybe you don't like either of these two, but Pats or Geno's? Oh, I don't really like either. I mean, I definitely like don't like Geno's because I think it's Geno's had um, that sign that speak said English. like speak English. Yeah, and so yeah. after that, I was like, you know, it, you know is that even isn't idiot. there another one, another uh, cheesesteak place? That There's a bunch. I like Jim's on like South Jim's. Street. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Jim's what it was. Jim's is really good. Yeah, okay. um, but I definitely wouldn't go to Geno's because of just like this. Like, I, I think they've taken the sign down. Okay. But like, I remember that. I think it happened while I was in college. And mm-hmm. I was like, this guy is just like, you know, this Garbage. is just, yeah, this is ridiculous. Um, what's the definition of John? And do you know the etymology of John? The definition of John. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, w- I would say it means like, it's, I mean, it's a term of endearment. It means yeah. maybe deer is probably yeah. like the best. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, as a kid, my, my, um, my grandmother always used to say it. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, I told you, like, kids teased me when they yeah. found out. So, of course, like... No, no, John, not not June. Oh. John, the Philadelphia term, John. Do oh, I don't know what that is. Know? Okay. No. <laughs> I thought you were asking. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, no, I don't... John, uh, like, what do you... what? How, Get how, that John over there, or, oh, like, I'm going to go oh, do oh, this oh. John, or... Yeah, I've heard gonna, this. This is, like, not a... This is a Philly thing? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. I mean, I guess it just means thing. It's a, it's, I, I think would it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I thought you meant the Farsi. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's no. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> I was like, why is he asking me the etymology of John? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely, uh, my wife's from Philadelphia area. So like, oh, okay. they've said it yeah. a lot. And I was like, what is this word? And then they didn't know where it came from. And so I found this like article in Slate that discussed the, like where it came from. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea yeah. that it was. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, so we can, uh, I think we're, we've gotten to good stopping point. I uh, really appreciate you coming and taking time out of uh, writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe you needed a break. I don't know. Maybe you're in writer's block. I, I don't know. I think uh, what you're doing is, is really important and, and really useful. And, you know, I think as a kid, there's no like instruction manual. There's mm-hmm. no how to guide. And, you know, my hope is that, not only that Iranian Americans and, and Iranian Americans who are half talk more about these things because mm-hmm. I don't think we do enough, but right. I also hope that like other, you know, other young people who are trying to navigate this stuff um, and who mm-hmm. are half or even Iranian American can kind of like look to our generation mm-hmm. as, as, you know, having stepped in and having said more and having had more conversations than, you know, these conversations, I, I don't remember seeing them or, mm-hmm having them or reading about them in anything as a kid. And my hope is that, you know, some of this will be useful to, to some of those people. Yep, exactly. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And my pleasure. I, I Thanks really for having me. Appreciate you coming and uh, good luck with the rest of <laughs> however long it's going to take you to finish yeah, the we'll dissertation. <laughs> so.
Thanks a lot. Yep. When I first met Dan, he proved to be the exception to the rule I'd created after years of interacting with other halfies. Nearly all the cases, if the dad was Iranian, then the halfie across from me didn't speak Persian. He broke the trend because his dad's parents helped raise him and his sister. He Having them around with their limited English made it possible for him to learn Persian. It was a must, but not in a draconian way. It was simply a necessity in order to communicate with his grandparents who helped raise him. As the project was underway, I found out that Dan was moving back to D.C. He'd wrapped up the non-dissertation portion of his Ph.D. at Princeton and was looking for a more conducive environment to finish his treatise on elections in the Middle East. Thinking back to our very first interaction when I was forced to reevaluate my own assumptions about how we halfies pick up language, I thought Dan would be a perfect fit. I think much like... Sarah, Dan has done quite a bit more meditating on these issues and maybe owing to his many years in academia, he's figured out a way to better organize his thoughts. He has the benefit maybe of being forced to to question assumptions on his own personal biases. That is the nature of higher education, I suppose. Dan brought with him a strong desire to understand context, to fit our experience as Iranian-Americans, as white adjacents, halfies, liminal whites into the greater context of America. And like all the others, he's took some very key feelings I've had for a while and actually put words to them. For instance, he expanded on this idea that I used for quite some time that Iran is the whipping boy of American foreign policy. It's the modern-day boogeyman lurking around every issue fate. America faces in the Middle East. At least that's what the U.S. political elite would like us to believe. On an almost equal footing, though, America's mainstream media amplifies this message by spending significant amount of airtime and ink telling us just how close we are to going to war with Iran. This isn't simply during this current administration. This has been the case for as long as I can remember. This context, this environment is how most Americans have been exposed to Iran. And combine that with a long history of American military engagement abroad, most Americans lack the ability to empathize with populations on the receiving end of those threats. It's become far too commonplace for Americans to fully grasp just how damaging that can be. And... That's not just with the people in a faraway land. It's their neighbors who may happen to be from those places too and feel a deep sense of mental anguish. Dan described the experience as pretty jarring, that it's a major part of the Iranian-American experience and goes further to making us feel isolated as we're forced to make a choice between Iran and the U.S., between defending our family there and our friends here. No answer we give provides a salve to either side when both want nothing but a full-throated defense of their position. Maybe this concept fits into another of Dan's main points during our recording, the idea that there are certain rituals that define white society that kind of delineate who is or isn't white in America. Dan's point focused on American football as an example of how that delineation takes place, although there are plenty of non-whites participating in American football. But the point remains, these rituals that surround sports, sports, binge-watching the games, chugging beers, eating wings and nachos, can form a barrier to groups on the outside, even to liminal whites like Iranian Americans, making them feel more isolated and less a part of the group. These two concepts fit in another way, too. Part of being in a 
in-group, being white, that ritual, that white supremacy is knowing that your group doesn't have to regularly face exclusionary rituals. Whites don't have to worry about how these very casual conversations about bombing and other populations are received. They're never the ones being threatened by a bombing campaign. It's always a one-way street. And what happens when that white advantage is ripped away? Dan talks about how his friends would tease him whenever he would speak Persian with his grandparents and in the process discuss the idea that 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 teasing is actually an outgrowth of the dominant group's own anxieties of having to deal with no longer being in the dominant group, even if it's while being a guest in someone else's home. I saw the situation with my own friends who would come to my home when my dad's relatives were in town. They had a hard time adjusting to Persian being spoken loudly during dinner or drinking tea instead of coffee or the idea that rice was served with every meal or how they handled my uncle sprinkling a little bit of sumac on the rice. Maybe this is why white people are often so resistant to discussions about race and white supremacy. They subconsciously feel that in doing so, it could lead to a reduction in their power which would force them to have more frequent interactions with spaces where they aren't the dominant culture. Part of being biracial, part of the happy experience, part of being a liminal white is that you have to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable. But what stood out to you? How do you answer someone when they ask you where you're from? How do you explain it when they're looking for something far more simplistic? Let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at whiteadjacentpodcast at gmail.com or comment wherever you download the podcast. Thanks for listening and don't forget to catch the five other episodes. Next time they ask you where you're from You tell them I'm from every goddamn place you're crushing with your thumb. Next time they ask, what kind of name? You tell them, it's the kind you're scared of, but I'll say it just the same. And if they wonder who you are, well this time don't say nothing, you just pick up your guitar. White Adjacent is brought to you by Bourbon and Chai Media. Final production by Ian Martin. Interviews recorded by HeartCast Media, located in the DuPont Circle neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Music by Nima Samimi and his band Muhammad 7. The song, entitled Manifesto, comes from their debut album Muhammad 7 and the Spring. The album can be found on iTunes or on their website, muhammad7.com. And a special thanks to John Maines over at SB Works, a local nonprofit in Washington, D.C.'s Northeast Quadrant.